Well, today is Palm Sunday on the Christian church calendar, and so most, most of us are probably familiar uh, with a very comfortable and happy Palm Sunday idea. If you grew up in church, you, you may remember, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe, as you, maybe you wore, everybody wore white t-shirts or something that day, and maybe you lined one of the aisles or around the walls, and all the kids were given palm branches uh, to wave, and at the right time, all the kids yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, when the, when the pastor cued them in the scripture. Maybe you, maybe you have experiences like that. Uh, our view of Palm Sunday is, is, uh, is a remembrance that it's a pretty happy day. It's one of those last happy, carefree days of Jesus' life, and he was rightly celebrated as he entered Jerusalem. He finally received his recognition He finally received his due before, well, it all seems to go kind of badly the rest of that week. Palm Sunday, it has a triumphal feel to it. There's probably a heading in your Bible when you look at uh, John chapter 12 and verse 12. It probably says something like the triumphal entry. The triumph, when you think about it, seems to be a little bit short-lived considering that Good Friday is coming. So we have to explain Uh, triumphal entry. We have to explain Good Friday. It's another phrase that we sort of have to sort out. We have to sort out Easter Sunday, I guess. I I don't want to spend time uh, determining where the term Easter came from, so we're going to call it Resurrection Sunday, and then I don't have to. So we'll just do that. Our Easter series this year comes from John chapter 12, which contains Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which is the turning point in John's gospel. Every gospel has a hinge or turning point in it. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the turning point is when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, answers, you are the Christ. The first half of each gospel is about who Jesus is, and the second half is about what Jesus does. Jesus reveals who he is, and then he reveals his father's business that he has come to do. John's gospel does not record that account. In John's gospel, it's chapter 12 that's the turning point. It's chapter 12 that's the hinge. Jesus has been revealing who he is in John's gospel through seven miraculous signs, building up to chapter 12, and then everything else that happens in John's gospel flows out of chapter 12. 12, as Jesus sets his course for the cross. See, John chapter 12 serves as this hinge in John's gospel, and this turning point is revealed in three ways. Jesus is identified as God's promised king in verses 1 to 19. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Jesus announces that his hour has finally come to be lifted up on the cross to die. That's verses 20 to 36, and we'll be looking at that the evening of Good Friday. And Jesus identifies himself as God's command to eternal life, saying, believe in me, in verses 44 to 50. That'll be our focus on Resurrection Sunday. So we begin this morning, this Palm Sunday morning, with John chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. This is the word of God. Six days before the Passover... Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. 
Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of a money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! Jesus found a, don a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of God. Jesus arrives in Bethany before the Passover on his way into Jerusalem. He's, he's there to observe the Sabbath with Lazarus' family, and that, that Saturday evening there's a celebration after the Sabbath, there's a celebration dinner for Jesus. And you can understand why. It was just days or weeks before that Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. The account is in John chapter 11, where Lazarus has been ill and he has died. He was dead and buried for four days, and when Jesus called for Lazarus to come out of the tomb, the man who had died came out, John writes. See, Jesus had gone for away for a while after that, but now he was back in Bethany on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And so Lazarus and his family, maybe the whole town, maybe all of the people that were there, threw a celebration feast for Jesus to thank him for raising Lazarus from the dead, to celebrate him from raising Lazarus from the dead. It was a happy time. There's Lazarus reclining at table with Jesus, eating and drinking and laughing together. There's Martha, Lazarus' sister, serving, as Martha does. But where's Mary, Lazarus' other sister? Suddenly, Mary appears, comes on the scene holding a full pound of nard, which is an incredibly expensive perfumed ointment. And that is no small quantity. It's estimated to be worth a, a man's annual income at 300 denarii. It, that would be about $37,000 today in the state of Maine. Man's average income. 
And she pours all of it out on Jesus' feet. She washes his feet of all things with it and uses her, her own hair to wipe his feet dry. This is an act of profound devotion. To wipe his feet dry with her hair is very personal. To do so in public might be very embarrassing to her or to others around her, but she does it publicly to display her thanks for what Jesus has done. Her brother, whom she loved, had died, but now he's alive. Jesus did that. You can understand her devotion. Hey, throwing Jesus a dinner as a celebration is great, but Mary realizes what she has given Jesus, what she has been given by Jesus, and she pours out her thanksgiving and devotion on him in the most extravagant way possible for her. Everyone sees her heart. Jesus allows her extravagant devotion. Jesus sees in Mary a believing and a devoted heart. Jesus sees Judas Iscariot's heart too. Judas is pretty uncomfortable with Mary's actions and has his own ideas for other people's money. Lazarus' house is filled with this rich, beautiful, sweet scent of Mary's devotion. Judas Iscariot breathes it in like everyone else, and then he breathes out, what a waste. I could have sold it and given it to the poor. Of course, Judas had no intention of helping the poor, being concerned. He was just... He was just sad about what he had missed out on. And yet, Judas' objection to Mary's offering can be put in words that make us a little uncomfortable too. In a way, Judas is asking, how much does it cost to worship Jesus? And how much is left over for me? That's what Judas is asking. How much of what you have are you willing to devote to Jesus? And how much are you making sure you hold on to? There's a contrast worth noting here, isn't there? Mary's hands were open. She gave everything to Jesus. Her devotion was complete. Judas has given nothing. Judas is a taker. His hands are closed tightly around the money bag that is not even his. Judas is the one who remains in the grip of Satan. Mary's free. Jesus sees in Judas a heart that has already betrayed him. Your devotion to Jesus hangs around you like a lingering aroma. Do people sense a sweet love for Jesus that is attractive when you're around? Or a stale smell of insincerity? In addition to revealing hearts, there are two more ways I think we're meant to see Jesus' anointing. Although it's not stated, the storyline regards this as Jesus' necessary anointing as king. Jesus allows himself to be anointed here 
And a few verses later, he allows himself to be welcomed as God's king. What is stated is that this is a pre-administered burial anointing. Did you catch that? Jesus says, this is for the day of my burial. And he shocks them with the idea that he will not always be with them. I mean, I think they just go, what? There might be a day when you're not with us? Nobody's preparing for his burial. And yet, God, through Mary, provides this anointing. Which, which kind of intensifies, when you think about it, the plans of the chief priests, and it hangs a dark and an ominous cloud over the coming scene. <clears throat> A large crowd of Jews have gathered around Jesus at Lazarus in Bethany. They've heard the eyewitness accounts and seen the evidence themselves and come to the correct conclusion. They believed in Jesus and were coming with him to Jerusalem. If we were to, if we were to push back just a little into chapter 11, we learn that many of the Jews who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead believed in him at that time. At the end of the chapter... In verses 53 to 57, we read, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That's the chief priests and the Pharisees. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. Skip down now. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country of Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? They know the plot. They know what's afoot. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them, they should let them know so that they could arrest him. So they put out the word. They put out their feelers. Let us know when Jesus is coming. We're ready to take action. <clears throat> so when Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, before he even gets there, it's an intense scene. The religious authorities are planning to kill him and Lazarus, and they put out the word for everybody to turn him in. And it's, it's not a well-kept secret that if a very popular rabbi dares to show his face in Jerusalem, that he will be arrested by the religious authorities during the Passover feast. He's already a marked criminal. You see, unlike the popular children's Sunday school conception, Jesus entering Jerusalem is not all green palm branches and loud hosannas. It's a very real, very intense, high-stakes confrontation. Let me pick up and read verses 12 to 15. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and went out to read him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. When the crowd hears that Jesus is coming, their response, when they, when they uh, when, you know, it says, well, there's, here's this response, they took palm branches and they went out to meet him. Their response is not, hey, Jesus is coming. Well, you say we go out and meet him. Their response is, holy cow, he's really coming. This is actually happening. 
Now, the crowd is not one big monolithic crowd. It's not just one big, they're, they're all homogeneous, it all looks the same. I think John portrays three crowds here that have converged into one place at this moment. First, there's a large crowd making their way up to Jerusalem from the countryside to celebrate the Passover feast. Jerusalem is probably a town of around 80,000 people. Estimates vary wildly. Uh, but maybe around 80,000 people, and there's a, there's a few hundred thousand people that are going to impinge on them and overflow the city, all these pilgrims coming to celebrate the Passover. Second, there's a crowd coming with Jesus and Lazarus from Bethany. They're jubilant, and they're telling everyone that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. C- come here, you've got to look at this guy. He was dead, but now he's alive. Talk to his sisters. Third, there's a crowd already in the city preparing for the Passover. And they're aware of the poorly kept secret that religious authorities are going to confront Jesus. And they're the ones who grab palm branches and run to the city gate to meet Jesus shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, these words are from the Psalms. They're words that, that Israel would have sung in the temple as worship. And they use them here to announce Jesus. Not as God's long-awaited king, but as the newly arrived king of Israel. I think that's what they're thinking. Israel, at this time, has a couple of misplaced understandings that make this day what it uniquely was. The first was about their promised Messiah and king. They had come to desire a Messiah and king who would throw off the yokes of their Roman oppressors, and make Israel a great nation again, as it was in the time of King David. That has a a bit of a nationalistic flavor to it, doesn't it? We want our own king. We want to be Israel again. As does the Passover itself. During the Passover celebration, the Jews reenact the Exodus when God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Now, they're in bondage to Rome. This is the closest thing, the Passover, that Israel had to a 4th of July or an Independence Day. And as they celebrated their unique freedom holiday while under Roman occupation, this, this week took on a flavor of nationalism as well. The palm branch had long been a symbol of the Jewish nation. So they waved them like flags during a week dedicated to Jewish independence, shouting about the king of Israel. None of them would dare to behave this way by themselves, individually. They would be quickly arrested by a Roman soldier for sedition. But together, in a crowd, they dared to display such blatant nationalistic fervor. So if you went into the crowd... Say you were there on Palm Sunday, and you went into the crowd with a microphone to do the man-on-the-street interviews. I think you would get at least three responses to your question. Hey, so what are you doing here today? Excuse me, sir, so what are you doing here today? Well, one might say, hey, we're protesting for Jewish nationalism. Shh, don't take my photo. I don't want to be seen on camera. But that's what we're yelling. Another would say, well, we're telling everybody about Jesus who raised this guy from the dead over here, Lazarus. It's pretty cool. What about you, ma'am? What are you here for? There may be someone who would say, well, I don't know. 
I mean, we just came up for the Passover. But look at what's happening. It's pretty cool, isn't it? This is pretty wild. We just joined in saying what other people are saying. No one exactly knew what they were doing that day, except Jesus. Nobody knew what the outcome of their fervor would be. They didn't know what the result would be, except Jesus. In the short term, the crowd would become a temporary safety buffer for Jesus between himself and the Jewish authorities. They would, deny, they would delay their, their arresting of him for several days because of his popularity with the crowd, because of this fervor that was caught up around him. And so John narrates Jesus entering into the city by citing Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah, a prophet in the Old Testament. And he says something very interesting John does. The disciples did not understand the theological significance of what was happening that day. That one day, that Palm Sunday, that triumphant entry day, they did not understand what was going on until much later. Much later, after Jesus had died and was buried. After Jesus had rose from the dead and appeared to them. After Jesus had taught that all of Scripture was about him and his gospel on the Emmaus Road. Even after they had watched him being lifted up into the sky to be received by a cloud in the air, it was only after Jesus was glorified at the right hand of his Father in heaven that the disciples then remembered that day and understood that Zechariah 9.9 was about Jesus. That's when it happened. Look at this prophecy of God's promised king in Zechariah 9, beginning in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. That is what was happening on Palm Sunday. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy in Psalm 118, that's what the crowds were shouting, and here in Zechariah, what John makes mention of. He's fulfilling this prophecy from Zechariah so that we would see that he is God's promised king. He's coming to rule over the nations in peace. You know, maybe, one of the, maybe one of the disciples said, hey, that's why, that's why he commissioned us to go and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's wielding us like a gospel sword against all the nations. Yet so that he would not be misunderstood, which he was, 
He's coming humbly on a donkey, Zechariah prophesies. Maybe, you know, maybe one of the disciples read that and said, well, you know, it's, a, it's a triumphal entry after all. We just didn't realize that he was, he was coming to triumph over sin and death and the devil, which is what he did. He's, he's bringing a new covenant. He's bringing the certain hope of salvation by the shedding of his blood, Zechariah says. The crowd didn't understand what Jesus was doing, did they? No. They didn't ask, Jesus, what are you coming to do? Even his disciples didn't understand what he was going to do. Then, one day, much later, while reading Zechariah 9, the Holy Spirit enlightened their mind to understand these verses, and they said, this was written about him. This was done to him on Palm Sunday. They were there. They were eyewitnesses on Palm Sunday, but they couldn't see it. It was later. Listen, while reading their Bible, that they learned something very important about who their Jesus is. They saw that he is their king. Are you learning more about Jesus as you go day by day? Even the disciples did. Crazy important things that they missed at first. They were learning. Do you desire to know more about Jesus now than you did before? Because he's there for you. He's a person that you're learning and developing a relationship with and getting to know. Do you know him? Do you know him as a person or do you just know him in factual representation? It makes a difference to know that Jesus is your king because you will look at the world differently and you will prioritize things differently and you will serve him if he's your king and not someone else. It makes a difference to come to know this. Zechariah was not some dusty book of ancient words that had no relevance to the disciples' lives. It was deeply relevant, for by it they saw that Jesus was God's promised king and their king. They saw Jesus more clearly. He's wearing a crown now. They see that he's real and trustworthy, and they knew him, the king. Do you know him that way? The crowd did not know him that way. They were just caught up in the fervor. Oh, they were in the right place at the right time, like somebody sitting in a church pew on Sunday morning. But they did not know him. And yet, John tells us that many in the crowd came to know him. How did that happen? How did, how did some come to know him? Well, first they had to admit that they were not interested in the humble servant king who would die for them. They weren't at first. They had no appeal to them whatsoever. They wanted the king who would change their worldly circumstances and bring them pride in themselves. They wanted the king with military power who would bring them national liberty. 
But Jesus is a king with divine power who brings saving grace. He brings forgiveness to those who will repent of their sins and bow to his righteousness. He will not accept your divided loyalty. If you would forfeit your evil life and turn to him by faith, he will free you from your spiritual bondage. And he will give you everlasting life with him in his kingdom forever. See, Jesus has always been God's promised king for all who would desire him. In the beginning, God created Adam and blessed him and said to him, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds in the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Moses, in Genesis, doesn't call Adam a king, but his having dominion is a kingly function. Adam has the same kingly dominion ascribed to Jesus in Zechariah chapter 9. He's a sort of king. After Adam's fall, which we're all so keenly aware of, we trace the line of that dominion through God's promised seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And when we get to Abraham, we see that God makes promises to Abraham. The promise of a great name, a great people, and a great land. All things that a king would have. Scripture doesn't label Abraham as a king, but Abraham has a kingly function. He leads and he protects his people. Remember when he took 318 of his fighting men to defeat the four kings of the north and rescue his nephew Lot? That was a kingly function. And then afterwards, he stood toe-to-toe as an equal with the king of Sodom to reject his reward. And instead, he was served bread and wine by Melchizedek, also a king, the king of Salem. So from the beginning, God has revealed in pictures like this his promise of a king over his people. As we trace the line of promise from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, we find two more important men. We find Joseph, who actually becomes a king of sorts as the most powerful man in Egypt. And what does he do? What's the picture of this king? He he rescues Israel, God's people, from famine. He rescues all the nations who come to him and do what he says. He gives them what they lack so that they would live and not die. Joseph is just a a fuller picture of what God's king would look like. But that king is promised in the line of Judah. Judah's brothers shall praise him, and his hand shall be on the neck of his enemies. He is powerful like a lion. Jacob blesses his son Judah, saying, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall the obedience of all the peoples be. That is God's promise of his king through the line of Judah. It's the line we trace to King David in 2 Samuel verse seven, chapter 7. Turn to, turn to 2 Samuel in chapter 7 and find verse 12. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet Nathan. Okay, here in Samuel, God clearly promises his people a king from David's line. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall be a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That sounds triumphant. That sounds triumphant, but listen closely to what comes next. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there's this promise of a kingdom and a king, and then there's this kind of rocky part where this king is going to sin, and he's going he's to feel the rod of men, and he's going to feel the stripes, the scourging of the sons of men, of Israel. Now, although David's son, King Solomon, will sin, God's son, King Jesus, will not sin. Rather, he will take the sins of his people upon himself and be crucified by evil men. He will suffer the scourging and the cross do us so that he triumphs over his enemy, Satan. The crowd and the disciples missed the depth of Jesus' humility that Palm Sunday. It wasn't just that he was riding on a humble donkey. It was that he was going to the cross. The Jewish leaders would eventually get their way and kill Jesus. But what they intended for evil, God meant for good and for the saving of many. You remember that from Genesis. The prophet Isaiah takes up this strain in God's promise of a king who would be a suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53, just briefly, and look there. Beginning in verse 10. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. <laughs> these, these verses are packed with significance. Remember God's gospel promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. We understand that on the cross, Satan crushed Jesus' heel, causing Jesus' physical death, while... Jesus crushed the serpent's head, dealing Satan the death mortal blow. But here, Isaiah tells us that our sovereign God was in charge of all the crushing. Did you get that? Even the crushing of his son. It was the will of God to crush Jesus on the cross as an offering for the guilt of his kingdom subjects. And having suffered his father's punishment on our sin, he saw his offspring. His spiritual offspring, the subjects of his kingdom who come by faith in him. And that's why his days are prolonged. Jesus died and he was buried, but he rose from the dead to everlasting days. His days were prolonged so that it was the will of God to save many that has been brought about.
King Jesus saved his people and now rules his people. Having taken our sin away and having given us his righteousness, the very thing we need but do not have on our own, that we might live and not die. On Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem as God's promised king. That's a day of triumph. But it took the whole week of Passover to accomplish his great triumph for us. And it's not over, brothers and sisters. The book of Revelation, after King Jesus opens the scroll, in chapter 7, John says, yes, the same John that we've been reading in chapter 12 has written this, which has been shown to him. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every tribe and every nation and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a king who sits on the throne. It's our King Jesus. This is our Palm Sunday lesson to learn as the disciples did that Jesus our Savior and friend is God's promised and everlasting King. So do not fear, O church. Behold, your King is coming. He is humble and appears as a lamb who was slain. And one day, we will stand around his throne shouting, salvation belongs to our God and to the lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to learn as the disciples did, that we would know that Jesus is our King, that this was written about Him, and that this was done to Him, and that He has complete authority over us to affect our attitudes and our lives and our words and our behaviors, that we would come in line with our King and serve our King. Lord, we pray that you would press this into our hearts and make it real to us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.